Last fall, my son Michael and I loaded up his Mini Cooper for an 1,800-mile drive down to Arizona where he was going to go to college. Now, if you know anything about cars, you know that the size of a Mini Cooper is exactly what it sounds like. It's Mini. Still, I had the chance to spend a couple of uninterrupted days with my son. We had some great conversations, and I had the opportunity to listen to music that I would never have chosen to listen to on my own. And that was a special treat. Because we were already driving nearly 1,800 miles, we chose the, the quickest and the shortest route from Chicago to Phoenix. We were not interested in going out of our way to see any historical sites or giant statues or fancy gardens. Our goal was to spend as little time as possible in the Mini Cooper. And what I have discovered over the last 45 years or so that I've been a Christian is that the Lord does not share my philosophy on travel. It is clear to me that he is not committed to getting us from point A to point B in our lives in the quickest or shortest or even the smoothest way possible. While he is fully committed to getting us to the destination, he loves the scenic detours on the road of life. He chooses the journey that each one of us are on, particularly for us, in order to prepare us for the destination that he has us leading towards. And you know, recently the Lord demonstrated the wisdom to our family of not getting us from point A to point B as quickly as possible. And instead of answering our prayers in a very straightforward manner, which I'm fully convinced is well within God's ability to do, he answered our prayers in a very roundabout, complicated, and even elongated way. He took us on detours. He made us wait. We were disappointed at some of the developments. But he did that in order to remind us that we could fully trust him. And you know, Carmen and I were so encouraged by not only the answer to the prayer, but also how God answered our prayers, this unexpected and even complex way. It was a profound encouragement, something we're not going to forget for many, many years. And it was so encouraging that I was praying about what to preach this morning. I thought, I want to preach on the wisdom of God, because that's what we saw. And so I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, help me to completely explain the wisdom of God in the time that I have with you this morning. And I sensed the Lord say, yeah, good luck with that. So with the Lord's blessing firmly established, let's begin. Our passage this morning is Romans 11, 33 through 36. It's on page 947 in the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. You can turn there if you want. We'll have it on the screen as well. Let me read. It's the Apostle Paul writing, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now obviously it's impossible for me to fully explain the wisdom of God this morning. Even if we had a lot more time, we couldn't do it. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to persuade you of three things this morning. The first is that God's wisdom is unfathomable and glorious. 
Second, that God's wisdom is perplexing and precious. And third, that God's wisdom is worthy of trust and imitation. Some of those words are big, but we're going to get through them together. The first word I need to define is wisdom with respect to God. And a helpful definition that I ran across several times was this. God's wisdom is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. So there's two important parts of that definition. The first is that God's wisdom has devised the perfect end or goals for all of creation. And that secondly, how God accomplishes his perfect goals could not be improved upon. We might think they can, but they can't. It's also helpful to know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied to life. For example, knowledge is understanding how a vacuum cleaner works. Wisdom is realizing it doesn't make the best anniversary gift. <laughs> knowledge is knowing how to speak. Wisdom is knowing when to shut up. So we begin with, God's wisdom is unfathomable and glorious. And so here's my summary of this point. God's wisdom is beyond our understanding. It is simply too intricate. It's too complex. Much of it is even hidden from us. But even what we can grasp, even what we're able to discern, should inspire us to humbly praise God because he is so amazing. That's the point. Paul begins this little hymn in verse 33 by saying, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the, of the, and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know, Paul is in awe when he's writing this. He is, he is passionate about this. He feels this. You and I might read it in a moment and just kind of read it like, like that children's prayer for, for dinner if, it, if a kid's not really into it. God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, right? It's a good prayer, but you're not exactly inspired by the way he prayed it. Paul is passionate about this. He feels this. And there's three things that he was overwhelmed by. One is the depth or the greatness of God's riches. Secondly, God's wisdom. Third, God's knowledge. And in Romans 11, what proceeds in this chapter Paul has been talking about a rather, a rather complicated subject related to how God saves sinners. How do Jews, that is, the chosen people of God, how do Jews and Gentiles relate to the saving plan of God, and especially given that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah? How does that fit into God's plan? What does it mean for non-Jews? And as Paul concludes his explanation of God's plan, he breaks into praise. First, he's overwhelmed by God's riches. And here, probably not referring to God's infinite resources, but in the context to the riches or the abundance of God's kindness towards sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike. The question is, how does God love such disobedient people? You and I are ready to write people off far more quickly. Second, Paul was amazed by God's wisdom. And likely here, that wisdom refers to God's plan to forgive and to save people who are separated from him. Simply put, God's plan of salvation is radically different than what you and I would come up with. It's radically different than what the world religions have come up with. In short, it's works versus grace. It's us doing everything we can to get to heaven 
or it's God saying, you're not going to make it without my help. It's all grace. It's all a gift. It's all through Jesus. And then third, Paul was blown away by God's knowledge. Again, not simply intellectual knowledge, but, but personal knowledge. God's personal knowledge of you and of me. No matter who we are. And it's ultimately a knowledge that's expressed in salvation for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ rather than in themselves. And Paul marveled at this. And he goes on to say in verse 33 that God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways inscrutable. You know, in the age of Google, we think of nothing as unsearchable, right? If you want to search it, you just put it in the search window. You're going to get 2 million answers and 4 million ads in a matter of moments. But Paul's point is that God's judgments or his decisions about the way he runs his universe, they're, they're unfathomable to us. They are incomprehensible. Sometimes they simply don't make sense. Sometimes we just don't have the brain capacity. We know so much less than we realize. Let me give you a quick example. Many years ago, I worked in a machine shop, and I was in uh, the raw material department. And so I was responsible for unloading trucks that would deliver 12-foot-long bars of all kinds of metal, brass, um, bronze, stainless steel, steel, copper, aluminum. And I would load those on these, these uh, massive, basically, storage racks that were probably about 15, 20 feet high. And you'd, you'd get them and you'd load them wherever, wherever you could. And there was a mix of, you know, there's three racks when I was there. I mean, you would have been proud of me. I was climbing all up and down. I was filthy at the end of the day. And inevitably, somebody would come to me and say, you know what you should do? You should put all the brass in one rack, all the steel in another rack, and then all, you know, something else in the third rack. And I'm like, oh, really? I think I should do that. And that was actually was my idea when I first got there until I realized just how stupid an idea it actually was. I mean, for one thing, we had more than three metals. For another thing, you couldn't evenly divide all of them. So you'd have one rack that was stacked full, a couple that were empty, and everything sitting on the floor. The biggest problem, though, was that you would have metals that were really similar to one another. You could have brass that was half an inch round, and you could have brass that was five-eighths inch round. And if those two are sitting next to each other on the same rack, what's the likelihood that I'm going to pick the right one at $4 an hour? Right? I, that's close enough that's going on in the machine. These are bright guys who suggested this, but it reminded me that, you know, we're not as bright as we think we are, especially when we get out of an area of, of any kind of expertise. So Paul goes on to say, God's ways are inscrutable. That means they are impossible for finite human minds to fully grasp. We, we know in part, but we don't know the whole. In fact, not even close. Consider the wisdom of God in creation. We all know there are incredibly intelligent scientists who have made some fascinating discoveries to help us understand the world we live in. And yet virtually every discovery raises thousands more questions. And it really shows us how little we truly know about our own planet, much less the universe. For example, upon the discovery of quantum mechanics, quantum physics, and you may have heard about this, the pioneers of the field, they were so surprised by the discoveries they were making that many of them were quoted as saying this, not only is the universe stranger than we think, it is stranger than we can think. It is stranger than we can think. These are the brightest minds looking at this. Or consider that there are eight times as many atoms in one teaspoonful of water as there are teaspoonfuls of, full of water in the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it's, it's hard to even fathom that. How could God make something so small? 
But God also makes big things. The universe is so large that we can't comprehend it. The moon is 238,855 miles away from Earth. We can grasp that, right? We've been in Chicago traffic. <laughs> the sun is 93 million miles from Earth. It's a big number, but again, Chicago traffic. But the next closest star to Earth is Proxima Centauri, which is 4.3 light years from Earth. It is so far from Earth that we don't even use miles as a measurement because the number would be so large it wouldn't make any sense. As one person put it, the universe is so vast that to calculate its size, you need a measuring stick called a light year that is 5.88 trillion miles long. That's the measuring stick, 5.88 trillion miles long. Think about that for a few minutes. Is this the God you think you understand? He made it, and he's greater than it. God's unfathomable wisdom and creation, it should help us to realize that he is so much greater than we are, and that we are mistaken, even arrogant, to think that we can understand everything he does. We won't. And in fact, he tells us just that. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 say this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is God, and we are not, and that's a good thing. But when contemplating the wisdom of God, our first response shouldn't be why. It should be wow. Wow. How did you do that? And that's exactly what Paul does. Look at the end of, of this hymn in verse 36. He says, to him be glory forever, amen, for all time that God would receive the praise and the honor that is due him. And so here's the bottom line. You don't have to understand God's wisdom to praise him for it. You don't have to understand it to praise him for it. The second truth I want to persuade you with is that God's wisdom is perplexing and precious. It is perplexing and precious. Obviously, sometimes God's wisdom appears unwise to us. Does it make sense? In fact, sometimes it appears unloving. But God's word is clear. It is always without fail for our eternal good. But we do have to wrestle with the fact that God's wisdom often confuses or troubles us. And the Apostle Paul understood that. In verses 34 and 35 of Romans 11, he asks three rhetorical questions. Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Each of these three questions goes back to a different passage in the Old Testament, but the answer that each one expects is the same. No one. No one knows the mind of the Lord. No one is the Lord's counselor, and no one is in the Lord's debt, or the Lord is not in the debt of anyone. I mean, be honest. In all of your times of prayer, has the Lord even once asked you for advice? He once brought a problem to you and said, you got to help me figure this out. I don't know what I'm doing. And yet, aren't we taking on the role of God's counselor when we criticize him for what he's done? when we doubt his wisdom? Aren't we telling him that he messed up and we know better? Verse 35 asks, 
If anyone has given a gift to God that puts him in their debt. I mean, can someone outgive the God who gave them life and everything in it? Is it possible? No. I mean, it would be like me giving my parents a $50 Amazon gift card at the end of their lives and saying, so we're even now, right? I mean, not even close. I think I heard them say amen when I said that. And yet we act like that too, don't we? We act like in spite of everything that God has given to us, he still owes us more. There's something he owes us. He has not done enough. He is in our debt. But it's not true. And you know when we lose sight of that, we get very, very confused about the Lord. God has the wisest eternal purpose possible for all creation. And he has chosen the wisest means to achieve that purpose. He doesn't include anything unnecessary or anything that undermines his purpose. He chooses the perfect means to the perfect end. That is the wisdom of God. And we may not understand it, but it's true. So i got to ask, why is it that the, the will of God, the wisdom of God, is so perplexing to us? There's a few reasons. I think, as we said, much of it is hidden from us, and we don't realize that. Sin has spoiled God's perfect creation. Sometimes we expect things to work as if they weren't broken. But sin has broken the world. And also, God has an eternal perspective, and we have a very temporal one, right? It's a difference between a marathon and a sprint. Our perspective of what we should get out of this life, what we're looking for, it's very, very temporal. God has a, an eternal purpose in us and for us. And so I think when you put all these things together, you get a pretty simple answer as to why the, the wisdom of God is often perplexing to us. We are the most confused about God's wisdom when his will for our lives is different than our will for our lives. When his will for our lives is different than ours, we are most confused. So let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Um, on occasion, I've watched videos of artists uh, online without knowing what they were creating. I've seen guys with chainsaws carving wood or ice, and after a while, I think I have an idea of what, of what they're making, and I'm like, oh, he's, he's carving a dolphin. That's so cool. And then a minute later, he cuts off the dolphin's head, and I'm like screaming, what are you doing? Put it back. He's going to need that. And I'm so frustrated with this second-rate artist until I realize that he's sculpting something completely different, apparently something headless. And I'm frustrated because I, I, this is what I thought you were doing. It doesn't make any sense to cut off that limb. So what do most people hope for in this life? What do they hope God's plan is for their life? A loving family, good health, happy marriage, obedient children, bonus points if they're attractive, wealth, a long life. That's what we want, right? Those are wonderful things. I believe that all of them were included in God's original plan for humanity. Because when God created the world, it was perfect, right? There was no sickness, no death, no divorce, no poverty, no hate. The first humans were made perfectly in God's image, which means that they were holy as he is holy. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord, the image of God was distorted and disfigured because sin corrupts and it results in pain and sickness and death and hate and so on. And so here's the key. From God's perspective, the number one problem facing the human race isn't sickness or divorce or poverty, as bad as they are. 
the number one problem from God's perspective is that the image of God in us has been distorted and disfigured because we are alienated from our creator, a creator who longs to be reconciled to us, to restore the image of God in us. And that is why I believe the wisdom of God is so perplexing to us. Our primary desire, most of the time, is for the good things that God gives. God's primary desire is to make us good like him. And that can be hard to accept. It can be exceedingly painful because sometimes pain is the only thing that wakes us up. And pain is the only way at times to be more like the Lord. But you know, in the Bible, God has given us the bigger picture. Think of it as God telling you what he is sculpting in advance. So if he cuts off something that looked pretty important or was pretty painful, you'll have a better idea of what, what are you doing? You'll have the bigger picture. Apart from a relationship with him, you and I are completely lost. And apart from being satisfied thoroughly in him, we are not yet what he wants us to be. Look at verse 36 of our passage. It says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, everything that is created is created by God. It is sustained by God. And it is ultimately for the revelation of God's glory. All things lead to him. Are you familiar with the phrase, it's not about you? This is the ultimate, it's not about you, that you and I can imagine. It is all about God. And that is a wonderful thing for you and me. You know, sometimes people hear that God, God made the world for his glory. Everything is for his glory. And they think, what a selfish, egotistical God. And they completely misunderstand. I want to modify an illustration I read this week that I think explains this. What would you think if you read a story about basketball legend Michael Jordan going to a poor neighborhood in Chicago, driving his Porsche, I assume he's not driving a Honda. He drives his Porsche and he stops and he plays basketball for two or three hours with some kids in the neighborhood. Would you think he was egotistical? Would you think what an arrogant thing for him to do? No, he is a hero to many young people, basketball players all over the world. And he has given them a chance to spend time with him. It would be the dream of a lifetime. That really is what the glory of God is like. God has created us for his glory, not because he needed more glory that we could give him, not because he lacks something, but to share that glory so that we could enjoy it, so that we could experience it, so that we could marvel over it, that we could enjoy him forever. That's why he created us, for his glory. So, how do we make sense of God's wisdom, at least as much as we possibly can? The key is to align your purpose for your life with God's purpose for your life. And the only way to do that is to fully yield to the wisdom of God and not rely on your own wisdom. Not trust your own instincts over God's. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24 says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, as through its own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you hear the gospel, that the only way for you to be forgiven of your sins and to be reconciled to God the Father is by receiving the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, believing that he paid the penalty on the cross for your sins. If you listen to that and you think that is stupid, that is foolishness, then you are fulfilling this passage. But you are relying on your wisdom rather than God's, and he's warning us not to do that. Jesus is the wisdom of God, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins for everyone who puts their trust in him, puts on full display the wisdom of God. If you think you don't need him, if you think you'll be okay without him, or if you think maybe you're too bad to be forgiven, that somehow Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough, you are relying on your own wisdom and not on God's. And let me encourage you, just because it makes sense to you doesn't mean it's right. God's wisdom is far greater than ours, and we just need to accept that. And that is why the wisdom of God is so precious to us. Because the perfect purpose of God for our lives is to make us like his son Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants us to be good, inside and out, thoroughly, free from temptation, free from the weakness to sin, free from all of the things that we regret or should regret. That's his perfect purpose. And he accomplishes this by perfectly and completely forgiving every sin we've ever committed. Past, present, and future all goes on Jesus. By adopting us into his family as sons and daughters. By welcoming us into his presence for all eternity. And so yes, in this broken and fallen world, we will still be hurt. We will still be perplexed by God's wisdom. But consider the words of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. You know, that's the hope we need. That's the promise that we need. God has a perfect plan for our lives. He is accomplishing that through his son Jesus, and he promises to give us everything we need in order to get there. You know, at the end of our service today, we're going to sing a song called The Perfect Wisdom of Our God, which has the following lines that I think are helpful. Each strand of sorrow has a place within this tapestry of grace. So through the trials, I choose to say your perfect will in your perfect way. The third and final truth I want to persuade you with is that God's wisdom is worthy of trust and imitation. And this final point really is a simple one. The Bible is the revelation of God's character, his person, and his will to us. And in it, the Lord tells us what he is like and what his purposes are for all of creation. Because God's wisdom is unfathomable and perplexing, because it is so far above ours, we are tempted to rely on our own wisdom. We are tempted to just act on what seems right to us, even if God's word says it's wrong. It's easy to doubt. It is easy not to trust in the Lord. But that would be foolish on our part. A well-known verse in the book of Proverbs says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is true for you this morning if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ completely for the forgiveness of your sins. It's also true for those of you who have but are going through a period of suffering and confusion and doubt. I mean, the reality is that God doesn't give us a lot of answers to the why questions of life. Why do some people die young or in foolish accidents? Why is it that some wicked people prosper and never seem to be punished? Why is life so unfair at times? You know, when I think about those questions, I go back to the insightful answer that Johnny Erickson Tata gave when she was asked a question like that. And you remember, she had an accident as a teenager and is a paraplegic to this day. She said, when you're asking a question like that, what you don't need is an intellectual answer. You need a personal answer. You don't need God to explain it to you. You need the Lord to tell you, my grace is sufficient for you. I love you. I will be with you. I will get you through this. That's what we need, and that's what God wants to give. Not just an intellectual answer, but himself. That's the wisdom of God. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom told the story of riding home on the train with her father after accompanying him to purchase parts for his watchmaking business. And on the way, she asked her father a question about sex that arose from a discussion in school. And after thinking about his answer for a while, her father took his suitcase down from the rack. And Corey recounts their conversation this way. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? Her father asked. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased this morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Such, some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And that's what the Lord is telling us sometimes. He doesn't tell us everything, just what we need to know and what we can handle. Yes, God's wisdom is hard to understand, but he can be and should be fully trusted. He who did not spare his own son, the sacrifice, the willing sacrifice of Jesus tells us that God is willing to give us everything. There's no reason for us not to trust him. If we need to know, he'll tell us. For now, we wait and we trust, but we do one more thing. We imitate God's wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The wisdom that we need from God is readily available to us. He promises to give it generously to everyone who asks. And you know, that wisdom will lead us into a right relationship with God. It will lead us into a holy and a proper fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord, not terror or anxiety in the face of a vengeful God, but the appropriate respect and awe that God alone deserves. The God who created us and longs to make us like his son. That fear, that awe, that respect, that honor, that obedience, 
That is the beginning of wisdom. Before that, you have no wisdom other than your own. You begin that, it's a lifetime journey of the wisdom of God. He is inviting each one of us this morning to a deeper relationship with him. And the question is simple. Are you wise enough to pursue him? I hope you are. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize, I trust, that you are far wiser, far greater than we could ever imagine. And so, Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts to that truth and all of its implications. I pray that your love for us, supremely displayed in the sacrifice of your Son, would cause us to trust you the way we should, and that we would imitate your wisdom, which is so precious to us and is so inspiring of praise. Father, do what only you can do in our hearts, I pray, for each one of us, in Jesus' name. Amen.